Again, good morning. I'm Nathan. Let me read our scripture today. and um, This comes from Revelation chapter 18. We'll be talking about 17, 18, and 19, but these middle verses kind of encapsulate much of what we'll talk about today. I'll read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Whew. Well, here we go again, right? Revelation. Whose idea was this? Oh, well, God's, I guess. Uh, he put it in his book. I mean, Revelation is arguably the weirdest book in the Bible, right? And you know, in many ways, too, just the hardest to even begin to understand. All these images and symbolism, we've tried to, to walk through that faithfully over these last several weeks together. But another thing that's interesting about Revelation, it's also one of the most commonly used books in popular culture. Different phrases, words, ideas have been the fodder of scary movies and Halloween stories for generations. Like, even if you've never been to church, didn't grow up in church, there's a really good chance you've heard of 666 or the Lake of Fire or the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse or even the words Armageddon or Apocalypse all come from right here. And today we come to another one of these phrases, the Whore of Babylon. Ooh. I mean, it just sounds so awful, doesn't it? So, it's so graphic, and yeah, kids, parents, sorry. Like, you're going to have some interesting conversations later because that's, that's the metaphor that's used here. I mean, what, what could be so awful, so evil, as to merit that name? I mean, surely nothing we do, Right? I mean, it's, it's, too, it's too heinous, and so maybe you think of some extreme sins and think, well, it couldn't be anything we're a part of, could it? Hmm. What this refers to is so subtle, 
so surprising and so seductive. The whore of Babylon is the allure of financial security. Come on, Nathan, really? Yeah, that's, that's what it is. It is the allure of financial security and the economic systems that lead to luxury and safety for some and marginalization and oppression for others. The mistress is our greed and it could destroy our souls. So this is going to be fun, right? But you're glad you came to church today. Like some of you have been putting off coming back and now you're here and this is, this is what you get, right? Um, sorry about that. Because like the thing is, there's not a person in this room or watching online who isn't being seduced. And if you take just one thing with you today, I hope it's this. Financial security is seductive, but it will never be enough. Financial security is seductive, but it will never satisfy you. So turn to Revelation 17, if you haven't already, or go there on your, on your phone. Look at these, these words here. Again, we're going to try to cover all of this, this metaphor in these, these three chapters. But let me remind us, like as we've said with Revelation, Revelation, yes, it is about the future, okay? It's, it's about what's coming ahead, but it's not just about the future. It's also about the past and the present. We've tried to, to point that out throughout this series together. It's, ultimately, it's about the pattern of God's work in this world of how he redeems our brokenness, how we rebel, how he judges, and how he redeems. Like, it's this continual, continual cycle. And so, yes, it is building to something, but it also has application for today. uh, It reminds me of of one of my favorite quotes attributed to to Mark Twain, uh, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Have you heard this? Have you heard this? Like, I think that's a great summary, even of what's happening in, in Revelation, right? It points out these rhymes in history. Like, I even think of the, the musical Hamilton, and regardless of what you think of the music, like, you cannot miss the rhyming upon rhyming, right? Just got layers and layers and rhymes that you didn't even know you could make are, are in there, and I mean, that's, that's what Revelation does with history. Or, or, or like any good musical for you Broadway fans out there, there's almost always a song somewhere in the middle and somewhere towards the end, right, that brings all of the themes together, right? It doesn't minimize the individual songs, but there's, there's that cl- climax, right? That, that moment that brings the different tunes together. This is, this is what Revelation does. And so Babylon is a song, and Rome is a song, and today is a song. And Revelation is like the climactic grand finale where it's all brought together. Every melody begins to make sense. You hear the themes, past, present, and future. And when people looked at Babylon, or Rome, if you remember, Reed's talked about that, right? When, when uh, Revelation refers to Babylon, it's often referring to Rome, really, as well, because that's the, that's the empire at work in the first century, right, in which this was, this was written. But when people looked at Babylon or Rome, the thing that they were most struck by was its economic prosperity. The incredible amounts of luxury, for those in power, the, the intense sense of security that these empires promised. They were known for riches, luxury, 
and safety. And what is our country known for? Right? History doesn't repeat itself, but boy does it rhyme, doesn't it? And Revelation reminds us that no matter where or when you live, it doesn't matter. No matter where or when you live, it is so seductive. It is deadly, and it will never be enough. But today we're going to see three truths that can set us free. Three things that can set us free from this seduction. First, we begin by simply recognizing we are being seduced. You and I, every one of us, it's constant all around us, right? Money, stuff, pleasure, comfort, safety. And money's not bad, right? The Bible's not down on money, right? But it is seductive. Like a siren song, it calls to us, it sings of the pleasures and the security that it can offer to us. And so look at 17, verse, verse 1. Here's how this kind of metaphor begins to build some traction there for John in Revelation. It says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And the Bible's fun, isn't it? It's a fun book. But think of those images, right? Purple, scarlet, gold, jewels, pearls. Like all of this is pointing to the luxury and the prosperity of Rome. Sort of just dripping with riches. So much so that the rulers of the earth have gotten drunk from her promises. But so have the citizens. Listen to these phrases from, from chapter 18. Let me just point to a few of them. 18 verse 3, it says, The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious, luxurious living. 18 verse 7, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. Verse 9, the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. 18, 19, all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. This is what empires are known for. Now, please hear this. Wealth creation, wealth itself, like these are not bad things, okay? Um, our role from the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning, God put us on earth. He gave us a task, right? It's to, to bring flourishing out of this world, to, to make things better, and that often involves wealth, right? Resources. But in a fallen world, this sometimes comes with Oppression for some and self-indulgence for others. Now, we even have to enter into the economic system a little bit of, of John's time to understand what's going on here because it's not the same economic world that we live in, okay? And so, so for John's time, the economics of Rome was a zero-sum economy. Uh, that means that like, the wealth was tied to finite actual assets like land. That made it a fixed pie. Like if I got a piece of pie, then that means you don't get a piece of pie, right? Because there's only so much pie. So if, if one nation or one person got wealthier, that meant others got poorer. Does that make sense? Okay, that, that was the economy that they lived in. That's not today's economy. 
I mean, essentially, we've learned how to make more pie, right? But that doesn't get us entirely off the hook, does it? Like, because there's, there's still inequality and oppression. And so the idolatry that's described in Revelation, it's not tied to a particular economic system. So don't hear that, that one, one way of doing this is necessarily, that's not what's happening there. It's not tied to the system, but to the heart. It's tied to the ends to which you and I will go to feel secure. To feel like we have enough. Do you hear the siren song? This all reminds me of my uh, first encounter with a prostitute. And I know there's got to be a better way to say that. I, I tried to come up with one. Uh, it's not what you think, okay? Uh, but I, I, was, I was 19, okay? Um, and I was, I was living in downtown Chicago at the time, and I was on the subway. It was about 4 a.m. And I was it, was, it was morning for me. I was on the way to catch a flight, but it was clearly uh, night for her, right? Um, coming home from her work. And I just remember sitting there across from her on the train, and I just felt so sad. Like sad for her, for, for whatever got her to that place, sad for the customers who thought this would satisfy, sad for my own lust that, that contributes like, to the demand of this, this market, right? Sad for a world that should not be this way. And John is saying, in Revelation, we should feel the same sort of sorrow, the same sort of ache, the same sort of tears, the same sort of disgust when we see those who are living for economic prosperity. We should be just as heartbroken when we see those who actually think my security, my happiness is going to be in what I get next. We should be heartbroken over it. And we should be able to see it within ourselves. The extent to which we will go to feel safe or to feel like we have enough. And once again, I give in to her seduction. John uses these vivid images on purpose. Like, he wants us to feel uncomfortable when we read this. Like, he, he, wants, he wants all of us to, to really, like, feel kind of just gross in this moment, right? Because he's trying to show us that living for security or luxury is as dangerous as cheating with a prostitute. Oh, man, I would never do that. we are already being seduced. See, committing, committing adultery is bad, okay? Make sure you hear that. Like, don't do that. That's, that should be an obvious thing, I guess. But at least, at least with that sin, you see it coming. Do you know what I'm saying? I heard, heard one pastor describe it like this. Like, nobody commits adultery on accident, right? You don't wake up in somebody else's bed and be like, hey, you're not my wife. Like, that, it just doesn't happen, Right? You almost never see it coming. That's why this is so dangerous, why greed and, and self-indulgence can be so dangerous. We almost never see it coming. Because you and I can think of about 50 people who need to hear this sermon. But not me. I only want a little bit more. Right? Financial security is seductive. But it will never be enough. And it is deadly. That's the second thing. 
We are being seduced, and the seduction is deadly. Go to chapter 18. Let me read beginning in verse 11. It's a long list that John gives us here. It says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. You know, what's interesting is actually this is one of the most extensive lists in all of antiquity for this time period in, in Roman history. Like, of all the, all the you know, the artifacts, the things that we found, like, this, of all the trade goods, this is one of the most extensive, and it's in the Bible, right? It's kind of interesting. It's because God cares about economics. Like, God cares about this stuff. He, he cares about economics, and he cares about the flourishing or mistreatment of his creation. And you, you noticed it, right, where, where it builds? Like the climax of that list, slaves that is human souls. You see, the economic flourishing of Babylon and of Rome and of most great empires, including today, like some of our luxury and security comes at the cost of others, doesn't it? Let me give three quick examples. First, abortion. And before I say anything at all, let me just say, I know for some of you this is a very personal and painful topic. And I want you to hear above all else that we are glad you're here, you are loved, and there is forgiveness with Jesus, okay? But Planned Parenthood is a major business. And in 2018, they, their revenue was $1.7 billion dollars. And historically, they've concentrated in lower-income and minority communities. And so think about that. That, that means that wealth is built taking the lives of the most vulnerable, often at the expense of the most vulnerable communities in our cities, in our country. And our national economy, you and I, benefits from that. Second, racism. One of my favorite former professors, Crawford Luritz, recently said, just a couple weeks ago, in an outstanding podcast from the Gospel Coalition on Race in America, those two classes I had in seminary with him were two of my absolute favorites, but listen to what he said about race, race in America. He said, racism would not exist apart from the sin of greed. Greed is the fuel that drove racism. Greed was the dominant driving force that justified slavery in our country. And it makes me think today of the, the old real estate practices that were still law just 52 years ago, restricting my, minorities to certain communities. Like those, those laws are dead, but those communities continue to be plagued by poverty, by inequity, and by crime. And meanwhile, my home value has never been higher. This is part of our national economy. One more. Sorry. But you got to hear this, right? One more. Human trafficking. 
Uh, look at this headline uh, not too long ago from Fortune magazine. Human trafficking is an epidemic in the U.S. It's also big business. So it's estimated, it's hard to know exactly, but it's estimated that in our country between 15 and 50,000 people are trafficked each year. Slaves. 71% are women and girls. Many are minors. It's a global business of $150 billion a year. $99 billion from sexual exploitation alone. Just to put it in like, perspective, the NFL makes about $15 billion a year. $99 billion. Pornography feels, fuels that demand. I mean, if you look at porn, you're creating this. In, you're part of the problem. You're creating the demand for this. And our national economy benefits from this. And we could, I mean, we could go on, right? We could talk about unfair labor practices, how our, our clothes get made, how our strawberries get harvested. We could talk about environmental issues. I mean, we could, we could do all that, but I think I've probably made us all uncomfortable enough for one day, right? And this is, it's all incredibly complex, right? It all involves systems and structures. I don't know the solutions to any of this, okay? But I do know that I've been seduced, because I would rather turn my back. I'd rather not ask too many questions, right? Blame others and live my quiet little life sleeping with her. But John says to his church, we can't. We can't go on living like this. And I'm grateful for the luxury and security that I experienced living in America, but she cannot be my mistress. Because you see what happens when it's taken away? Like, it's not, it's not great for those who put their hope here. Look at verse 14. Like, this is where it's building. John says, The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her all stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. There is only fear, grief, and devastation those who get in bed with Babylon. Do you see that, that, that word Babylon? It's connected to the same word that's used way back in Genesis for the Tower of Babel. Some of you might know this, this story, right? It's, it's when we as humans, we try to build this monument to what we can accomplish without God. Like it's this incredible moment of saying, God, thanks, but no thanks. We've got this, right? That's that's what Babylon is promising. You can have it all without God. The American dream or whatever you call it, right? It'll only cost you your soul. You see, Babylon promises Eden without God. Luxury, security, 
safety, pleasure. Like that's, that's the Garden of Eden. Or in the Revelation, in Revelation it's referred to really as, as the New Jerusalem. That's what it's, it's building to, this, this new creation, this place of, of paradise and joy. So of course we want it, right? Of course these things are, are drawing us in. We're made for this kind of reality, a, a world of pleasure and safety and security in the presence of God. We're made for that. And she promises it to, to us without God and at the expense of others. This is what Reed talked about just a couple weeks ago, right? An almost Jesus is an absolute threat. And an almost Eden is just another name for hell. Which kingdom do you want? I don't know about you, but I'm glad this is almost over. Um, We're getting there. Last point. So we're being seduced. The seduction is deadly. But most importantly, church, the wedding is better. The wedding is better. That's, that's, that's the ultimate contrast. That's everything in Revelation is building to this glorious wedding where we get to choose between Babylon and the New Jerusalem, between scrounging around in a dumpster for leftovers or an endless delight in a feast, between being married to Jesus or sleeping with a prostitute. You see, everything in Revelation builds to this wedding. Like, that's, that's why the images are meant to be so visceral, right? Because you, you have the, the beauty and the purity and the joy, the delight of a wedding. Or you have her. In church, in this metaphor, we are his bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. Our marriage is to him. How can we cheat, cheat on him? Do you, do you see where all this builds in chapter 19? Look at this in, in verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Friends, this is what's at stake for us. We're being seduced Because she promises to make us happy, doesn't she? Like numb the fear, heal the ache, just a little bit more, but she is a liar. And the only way out of her pseudo joy and faux safety is by falling in love with the real thing, with Jesus the bridegroom. Because you are going to run somewhere. All of us are looking for the new Jerusalem, right? We're all looking for Eden, for the new... We're, we're longing... You're going to look somewhere. You're going to run somewhere. Will it be to him or will it be to her? Yeah, okay, Nathan, but we live in an economic world. Like, what am I supposed to do about this? Anybody else just feel completely helpless right now? I do, right? Because you're right. And, and, like, money's not bad. Stuff's not bad. Like, that's, that's not the problem, ultimately. But if you, if you want to avoid her seduction, let me just recommend three things real quick. First, simplicity. The amount of stuff you and I have or hoard 
crowds our affections. I mean, truth be told, we can't see Jesus over the piles of our misplaced priorities. Buy less, give more away, and keep an eye on lifestyle creep. You know what I'm talking about? How just luxuries become commonplace over time. Because you see, every time I make a purchase to make myself feel better, anybody? Don't don't raise your hands. Um, Or think about my savings to make myself feel safer. Anybody? Right? Like every time I do that, I'm training myself to pray to Amazon instead of to Jesus. And Amazon answers faster. But it doesn't satisfy. Like pay attention to those habits. Your shopping habits or saving habits could be as deadly for you as porn. When you're bored or lonely or down, like you're not looking for a new pair of shoes or the latest tech. You're looking for Jesus. I mean, G.K. Chesterton, he said, I love this quote, he said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I think he's exactly right. The same is true for, for me. When, I, when I'm down or lonely or overwhelmed and I go browsing on Amazon for that next new thing, I'm looking for God. Because only he will satisfy. Be simple. Second, intentionality. Now this one is really hard in an economically complex world. Uh, but what you buy, where you shop, the things you invest in, all that matters. Like, it's not, it's not just neutral. And I, I can't tell you what pair of jeans to buy, although read the skinny jeans. Like, don't, okay? Just stop. I'm not going to tell you what to buy, right? I, I, I can't do that. But just recognize that behind every purchase, there are humans, like real people. And there are implications for the cars we buy, the restaurants we eat at, your investment portfolio. These are not neutral decisions. And sometimes it's good to spend money as well, right? I mean, it creates jobs when we do something our world needs right now a whole lot. But just ask yourself, will this purchase, this savings, this retirement, whatever it is, will it help the vulnerable flourish or just me? intentional. And the third, of course, is generosity. Like, of course, right? One of the best ways to expose Babylon for what she really is, is to give more away. It strips her of her power, of her allure, and it slowly releases us from her deadly chains. And there is real joy when we do. Be generous. And you already know all that, right? At the end of the day, I just don't want to, right? It's hard. I get it. Like, her, her appeal is strong. We have been listening to her song far too long. Get out of her bed. And go to the one who wants to marry you. The lover of our souls. The one who came to rescue us who came here to get us, who, who gave his life to, to heal us from our adulteries and our idolatries, to make us whole, who, who welcomes us back to him, who defeated death and promises actual security, like real security, and who promises to give us real joy, everything we need. 
for satisfaction. It's like he's standing up there at the front of the church. We just have to walk down that aisle, we the bride, to unite our, our lives with his and to truly live happily ever after. For again, John said these words, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are the bridegroom our hearts are longing for. Forgive us for cheating on you. Expose our hearts, our idolatries, our adulteries, and cover our shame with forgiveness and transformation. And let us now, as your church, your people, let us live as your faithful spouse, dedicated to you and anticipating the greater joys that are to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.